Sweet. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're in the middle of a series called Live Like Jesus. And uh, as a church, we're working through the book of 1 John and uh, just teaching verse by verse, uh, kind of thought by thought as we go through these passages and ask God to speak to us. And this morning, I want to quickly recap where we've been and then pick up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. So if you want to go ahead and get your Bible out while I'm recapping a little bit, that'd be great. Um, we believe that God's Word will change us if we spend time in it. We believe that it'll transform the way we think, and it'll uh, have an impact on the, what we do in our everyday lives, okay? Um, so when we started this book of 1 John, we said that John was trying to address some of the false ideas about Jesus, and so we asked the question, why uh, in our lives would we actually put Jesus as our model? Why would, why would Jesus be the one who we're trying to follow after? I mean, we said that we are Christians, which means little Christ. So in, in essence, we are saying we are following Jesus by just even calling ourselves Christians. Uh, but why, why is it such a big deal to understand rightly who Jesus is? Well, because if you get Jesus wrong, then you kind of miss the whole boat of Christianity. You miss the whole purpose of what we do and why we do it and how we do it and all those things because Jesus is the model. He's the one that we're going for. And John says in the first part of his book, he says, Jesus became flesh. God became flesh and he lived among us. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Uh, we, we interacted with him. We got to see his life. And we know that he truly is the Son of God, and he truly is God made flesh. And what he said to us is powerful, and we want to convey that to you. And so John's giving us this book to try to help us understand that not only did Jesus come, he showed us how to live, and he wants to transform, change our lives so that each one of us can experience the fullness of what God intends for our life to be. Okay? And so we worked through that first, first uh, four verses or so and talked about Jesus in that. Then we looked at the fact that um, John said, hey, look, if you don't acknowledge that you have sinned, that you missed the mark in living like Jesus, you're lying to yourself, okay? You're, you're fooling yourself if you think that you uh, are, are, are completely perfect, that you don't need to acknowledge the sin in your life. And the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, we, we can't get well uh, when we're sick, unless we acknowledge that we're sick, correct? Uh, you don't go to the doctor if you think, I'm not sick. I mean, you may be having symptoms, you may be having all these things, but if you say, I'm not sick, that, then you're, you're not going to go to the doctor, therefore you're not going to get well. And, and with sin in our lives, sometimes we can be experiencing the symptoms of being a person who has sin, disobedience to God, rebelling against God, making ourselves God instead of God, being God of our lives, and yet not acknowledge that that's there. And it's dangerous. It's really, really dangerous, and it's really, really destructive, is what the Bible tells us, okay? So then we moved on last week and said, look, you can say all day long that you love God with your mouth. You can say words. You can sing songs. You can, you can declare that you're a Christian, and yet your life could be lived in complete contradiction to what you're saying. And we call it hypocrisy. But we also see that in the Bible, God says, look, your words should be tested by your works. If you want to know you're really walking with God, you're, you have to look at your life, not just what you say from your mouth, okay? And then we closed out last, last week's session and the discussion specifically talking about what is true for us in Christ. And I don't know if you've read this week again from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. But if you haven't, I, go, I encourage you to go back and read that section. And just be encouraged because he says there that we have been forgiven, we have been set free, we are victors in Christ. And so we have this new identity in Christ, we have this new reality in Christ. And no matter how well we're performing or not performing, 
based on what Christ has done, we have life. And that today encourages my heart because I know that even this week, after preaching a sermon about how my words should be measured by my works, I saw my works not being consistent with my words. Anybody else figure, find that this week? That I say something, but then I find myself struggling in my works. And it's in those moments I come back and I say, God, would you please help me? Help me, God, be consistent in what I say and what I do. But here's the thing. In all of this, God is trying to say to us that he is light. He is completely pure. He's completely righteous. He's completely holy. He's completely true. And that we are to reflect all those things. We won't do it perfectly, but we're to reflect those things. He's also not, not only light, but he is love. And so we said that you know, our, our, we should have a perfect love for God, a growing love for God, and a growing love for people if we say we really are following Jesus. And when we love God and we love people, we won't sin. Increasingly, our sin will, will be removed because when we love God and we love people like Jesus did, we won't offend God, we won't offend people. Okay? Now again, don't hear me saying that we'll be perfect this side of heaven because our flesh is warring against us and we are weak. We are weak. But we can see increasing victory as we grow in our love for God and our love for people. Okay? But here's the thing that I want us to hear today. I think John is writing in this passage and it's been, I've been wrestling with it this week. Is that he then says to us that there is some competing loves. There's some competing loves. If our goal is to love God and to love people, why don't we do it? And I would say to you this morning that the reason is because we have these other things that we love that are distracting us from the things we should love. Okay? So, I want to read the passage to you and then we'll unpack that together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the chairs around you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one as a gift. They may not be the best Bible, but they're a Bible, and we encourage you to read it for yourself. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says this. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does the God's will remains forever. Now let's just start with verse 15 for a second. But, 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 but in order to really get an understanding of what John's trying to say here, uh, I think it's important to really look at two specific words in that first sentence he gives us, okay? Now, I'm going to be geeky for just a second. I'm going to give you a couple of Greek words and the reason I'm doing this is because I think it's really important when you think about um, the full context of the Bible. Uh, John, this apostle, he was the last living disciple. And when he writes here, um, he's writing something that's true and it's something that is God-inspired. But in John chapter 3, he wrote something that almost feels a little in contradiction to what he just said. Okay, Because in this passage he says, do not love the world, right? But in John 3.16, one of the most famous, most popular verses in all Scripture, anybody know what it says? For God so loved the world. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, how can it be that God would say he loves the world, but he's telling us not to love the world? So let me try to clear up that confusion just briefly, because I think this helps us understand the rest of what John is trying to write here. First off, in John 3, verse 16, where he says, 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The word love there is the word agapeo. Okay, this is where I said I was going to be a little geeky for a second, okay? It's the word in the Greek, agapeo, which is this all-encompassing love, okay? This where it's scribing worth and value, love at, at the, to the nth degree, all right? This is a God-type love. And what he says in John 3, 16 is because God is the one that is loving, the connotation is that it is a perfect love. It's a holy love. It's a pure love. It's a redemptive love. Are you with me? Okay, that's what he's saying in John 3, 16. So God has a perfect, pure, holy love for people. Okay, he has this amazing love. In 1 John chapter 2, the same word is actually used, but the connotation is different. And it's actually because we are the ones loving. And in that particular passage, the idea is that we don't just love with a pure love. Uh, the fact is, our, as, as, a, as a human being, our love is tainted by self, by our flesh. And so the word agapeo there is really more of a self, selfish type love, a self-focused, a human-centered type love. And we know that even on our best days, our love is messed up because we have in our flesh these things that, that, that uh, cause us to love based on performance or lo- love based on how someone else is meeting our needs, right? It's a self-focused love. So that's part of the difference that we, we see here. But the second difference that I think is even more mission critical in some ways is the idea where he says, love the world. The, world, the word cosmos is in both of these verses, and in both of these verses, the, the idea there is, is a different connotation. In Scripture, there's two primary words, or two, two primary ways this is used. One is the idea for all of God's creation. All of God's creation. And that's actually what he's saying in John 3, 16. God loves all that he has created. In fact, think about this for a second. God gave the world and all that he created the highest compliment he could ever give it. You know what that compliment was? John 3.16 tells us what that compliment was, that he gave his only son. I don't know about you, but I'm not giving up any of my kids for you right now. I mean, I love my kids. I can't imagine what that would be like. And yet it says in Scripture that God gave his one and only son for us. That means whether you in this room, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you're just exploring faith or not, whether you believe or buy into this whole Christian thing or not, I want you to know that God loves the whole world and he offered his son to make that declaration once and for all, to set us free from our sin, to forgive us, to give us life. And we say this all the time, but I don't want to ever stop saying it. We cannot earn what God has given to us. It was given because God is love. He is perfect redemptive love. But the word in John first first John chapter 2 verse 15 is not the same idea of the of all of God's creation. He actually is talking about the the system the system and the way of thinking that makes God that makes all of God's creation these temporary things ultimate. That that it makes it all that matters. Okay? This is very important. Are you with me? Stick with me for a second. This is going to be really this is going to really help us understand these three verses. So in John 3.16, to summarize, God loves completely pure, holy, righteous loves the whole earth, all that he's created. In 1 John 2.15, do not, human beings, love all the system or the way of thinking that makes this world, that makes these things that we see and experience ultimate. Okay? So what John is not saying when he says do not love the world is he is not saying don't love other people. 
That would be a complete contradiction to what we've said the last few weeks, right? It'd be a complete contradiction. So he's not saying don't love other people. In fact, he's not even saying don't love creation. Now, I think this is significant because as soon as we start talking about don't love the world, some of you in this room are like, okay, here we go. I knew at some point you're going to get into this whole thing. You're going to say, like, the life of a Christian is all about, you know, being sad and, and it's all doom and gloom and this world has nothing good for us and, you know, all of life is just, it's terrible. I want you to know that that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not that life is terrible. It's that it is good when God is God. It is great. It is enjoyable. It is pleasure-filled. It is life-giving. It is fun. It is exciting. And some of us need to hear that this morning because some of us think that excitement and fun and pleasure and good things are in contradiction to God. And they're not. In fact, let me make this case for you really quickly this morning that if you go back to the Garden of Eden where God creates everything, as he creates, he says it is Good. And not only that, but he puts man and woman in a garden that was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was glorious. It was the most amazing place. And they were there and they had food to eat and they had shelter and they had all that they needed and they had the presence of God with them. It was an amazing place. And so you think that they experienced good things? You think that life was good and it was fun and it was enjoyable? Absolutely it was. So for us to say that God doesn't want us to enjoy life, is actually in contradiction to Scripture. However, the sad part of that story is that it didn't stay in the state that God created it to be. Man and woman, they both sinned and rebelled and they ate from the tree they shouldn't have eaten from. And when that knowledge of good and evil came in, so did shame and guilt and fear, and it broke the relationship with God and it broke the relationship with each other. And at that moment, all the good things that were made to enjoy, to be enjoyed by God, begin to creep into the hearts of man and become idols. So in this passage, when John says, do not love the world, he's not saying don't enjoy the world. In fact, I think that Christians, we should enjoy beauty. We should enjoy art. We should enjoy good music. We live in the live music capital of the world, right? We, we should enjoy good music. We should enjoy good food. We should enjoy good drink. We should enjoy life. We, in fact, we should be the, like the chief enjoyers of the things that are around us, but not in a way that makes it the ultimate thing. And this is where it's dangerous. Because what John is not saying is to not enjoy those things, but what he is saying is very, very important for you and I to grab onto today. What is he saying? Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. Do not make the things that in the world ultimate in your life. Do not make those the things that you live for, that you would die for. Don't make those things of this world the things that you are most passionately pursuing. Are you with me still? See, because here's the thing. It's really, really easy to take the gifts of God and turn them into gods, little gods. It's really, really easy to do that. And it's so, it's so like subtle sometimes. And how all of a sudden something that you're really enjoying can become a God. Let me, let me just tell you one of the, the little G gods in my life. And this is not, uh, this is not in any way a uh, condemnation towards my wife. But did you know that my wife has become a little G God in my life? That there have been times where she went from a gift to a, a little G God in my life. 
And let, let me just tell you, that is, that is brutal. When I make her a little G God in my life, and I let myself be, rise and fall based on how things are going between us, or how well uh, I'm performing as her husband, it, it is brutal. It is brutally um, devastating in my daily life because I will let my, my attitudes and my actions all be deeply impacted by that relationship in an unhealthy way. Because I've taken something that was a gift, because I truly believe she was a gift, and I've made her a god. She wasn't intended to be a god. So it's going to be a messy ending if I leave her in that place. But thankfully, God wakes me up to that reality here and there. <laughs> and, and when I had those moments, and I'm waking up to that reality, I realize, God, I need to put you back as God of my life and not her. Because I'm, I've got these destructive behaviors that are coming out of an, an inordinate love, an out-of-order love. So we sh- should not treat the material world as that, there, that all that there is, is is the here and now. In fact, we get a couple other passages that kind of help bring clarity to this. Uh, James chapter 4 uh, is a really practical book, the book of James. And this is Jesus' half-brother. And he was a preacher uh, around Jerusalem at the time uh, after, after Jesus had left. And, and he gives us this book, and he's, he's speaking some really practical words of wisdom. But he says this in James chapter 4. It's going to sound pretty harsh, okay? He's talking to all the believers in his church. He says, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Because what he's saying to us there is he's saying, look, you say you love God, and yet you seem to be putting all your hope, all your desire, all your, your stock in what's going on in the here and now. It, won't work. it doesn't work that way. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You have, to, you have to put your hope in God and enjoy the things of the here and now. And if you begin to worship those things of the, the world, you've literally put yourself back into a place of being an enemy with God. No, no room for wiggle there, right? Or how about Matthew chapter 6, verse 24? If you're reading the Bible uh, reading plan with us, we read this a couple weeks ago, and it struck me again. Uh, there is no wiggle room here where he says, uh, to us, no one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of both God and money. You cannot say that God is my God, and yet still treat money like your God. So as I say all this, some of you may be starting to think, okay, well, what, what exactly does this mean, and how, how do I actually under, understand and get kind of below the surface here? Well, John, in, his, in the next verse, gives us a little clarity about what specifically he means when he says loving the world, okay? He gives us these three overarching ideas that really uh, encapsulate all of the areas of sin and struggle that we have as human beings. He says, For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, some versions say cravings, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's why you can't say you love God and love, elevate, exalt the world as the ultimate thing at the same time. Because look at what happens when we do that. There's three areas where all of our sin really could be compartmentalized or categorized into. All right? The first one he says is the cravings of the lust of the flesh. And just to help you, in case you're taking notes, the idea of lust here 
is over-desire. Over-desire for something. So listen, that tells me that desire is not bad, but over-desire is bad. Okay? So it's not wrong that we want things or we desire things. What is wrong is when we over-desire those things. We put those things over God. Or we, we participate or consume those things outside of God's plan for them. In fact, the first one, the cravings of the flesh or the lust of the flesh, that's when we want to do something apart from God's will. So we want to do something. I have a plan. I have a desire. I want to do it, and I don't really want God's input on this. I just want to do what I want to do. You ever been there? That's really what this cravings of the flesh, this lust of the flesh is all about. It's where my flesh wants something, and God, I don't have time to listen to what your plan is. I don't want to listen to your wisdom. I just want to do this. And, and here's the thing. When, when you follow your flesh, you just need to know, warning, 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 you need to know that if you follow your flesh, it's going to lead you down a path to destruction. Because it says in Scripture that our hearts are deceitful above all. And our flesh, even when we feel like it's the right thing, this is why I don't ever believe somebody when they say, well, just go, just go with your heart. That, do not go with your heart, okay? Whatever you do, don't go with your heart. Because your heart can tell you a lot of lies. You don't want to do that because your flesh will, will feed you things that you want to hear. You can convince yourself of a lot of things. And that lust of the flesh, that, that drive within you will push you towards the things that will actually kill you. Think about the this, this story I said a while ago in the, the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve are there and the serpent comes and he deceives and he tempts. What does he try to prey on? He tries to get them to believe that there is something that they need, even though God has said you don't need that. That's the first thing he does, right? He tries to prey on that reality that there is something in our flesh that wants things that God does not want us to have. But the next thing that's so important for us to avoid is the lust of the eyes. And this idea is that we not only would do something apart from God's will, but that we would have something apart from God's will. In the story, Adam and Eve, they look up, they see the fruit. And Eve, it says in the story, it says it was appealing to the eyes. Why do you think that companies spend billions and billions of dollars to market their products to us in such a way that when we see them, they are appealing because the human nature, the human condition is that when we see things, we want them. When we're driving down the road and we see that billboard and it's got that car, or we, we're driving down the road and we see that store over there and they've got this big thing about 50% off, you know, like got to have that sale, right? That's what lures my wife in is the sales. You know, we're, they're, they're marketing to us. We see things. We want them. That's why I don't even like going to the mall. I mean, I, maybe I'm weird. I, I just don't even like going in there. You just walk through there, and you're like, man, I am so, like, out of touch and uncool. And, like, what is wrong with me? Because like, you just walk around, and there's, like, all these perfect things, all these new things. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll be really gut-level honest with you. I had, I had this really difficult season when I was in college where— um, when I was, I guess I was about 19 years old, and, uh, and I know this is going to sound crazy because I'm a guy, but we would go to the mall fairly often. And what I found is that every time we would go to the mall, it's like there was something else we needed to buy. And pretty soon we found that we were going like three and four times a week. 
uh, to the mall, and, and, and when, every time you go, it's like, well, I need that. Oh, I need that. And then I need that. And literally to the point that I was sitting in a, in a Bible study with about a thousand college students one night, and God said, listen, you have made this thing into a God, and you need to just quit. You need to stop. I mean, it was like clear as day. God was saying, this is an issue. You've made this into a God. And so literally for a season, um, I, I just like, I, I found like four sets of clothes, like a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and some tennis shoes, and I wore them every day for like two months just to simply break myself of the fact that I always thought I needed something else. Now, I tell that silly story because here's the thing, like, stuff that we see with our eyes, it's so compelling, it's so attractive, it's so, it so lures us in. But it will destroy us if we give in to that lust and over-desire for it. The final thing he says, though, is he says not only it's the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, but also the pride of life. In the, I love the way he says it in the Holy Christian. He says, he says uh, the pride in one's lifestyle. The pride in one's lifestyle. You know what pride's all about? Pride is all about maximizing self and minimizing God. Elevating self and, and, and you know, looking down, on, like trying to belittle God. And we would never say that, but that's really what we're doing. But here's the thing. The only cure for pride is to maximize God and to see him rightly. And when we see him rightly, you know what will happen? <laughs> we'll get a real good glimpse of ourselves and we'll realize just how small and insignificant we really are. And how awesome it is that he would even care about us. So here's the thing, the pride in one's lifestyle, this is the, the idea that we would be something apart from God's will. Again, going back to the book of Genesis, what did he promise would happen? You will be like God. The serpent said, hey, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Now here's the thing, ever since Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we keep falling to the same tricks, the same traps. It might have a different packaging, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing over and over. It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the f- flesh, and the pride of life. Making it all about us, making it about what we can do, what we have done. And God says to us, it's going to destroy you because it's in competition with me. I didn't make you to worship that stuff. That's not what you were made for. You were made to worship God. You were made to have God at the center of your life. So let me just give you a few examples really quickly. Because this is, this is a, a, a thought here. These are things that are good things that get perverted and become bad things. Okay? So how about our sexuality? What about our sexuality? Good thing. I know this is church and we're not supposed to say that, right? That's, or that's how I grew up in church. They wouldn't talk about it. Our sexuality is a gift from God according to scripture. And it, there's a sexual desire in us that is a good thing. But guess what? When it gets perverted and it becomes about us, it becomes a God thing, and at that moment, that good thing, there's an over-desire, and it will, it will destroy us. God has a plan. He has a purpose for our sexuality. But if we make this as something that's about us, it will, it will, it will bring pain and, and hardship in our lives. Now, thankfully, if that's where you're at today, God is a gracious and merciful God, and he is good. And when we wake up to that reality that we've made something more important than God, he is good to meet us in that with patience and kindness and goodness, but the, the, the struggle is, is that it brings a lot of pain and a lot, of, a lot of things that God didn't want us to experience. What about this one? 
This is one in our country that's probably overlooked sometimes, but it's something that's really huge. What about eating? I mean, what about eating? What about, and there's two ways you can go on this. What about when eating becomes your way to deal with your pain and your suffering or just hardship or just difficulties in life, and so you eat for comfort? What, what, what do you do with that? Is food ba- a bad thing? Is it wrong to want food? No. But can food become a God in our lives? Absolutely it can. And it can become a destructive thing in our life with our health. Or even on the, on the flip side of it, sometimes we can become health nuts. And really maybe this is more about physical health and physical appearance. Is it wrong to want to be healthy? Is it wrong to want to look good? Is it? No, hopefully, you know, I want to look good for my wife, okay? I, I, I want, we, it's okay to look good, but what, what happens when it becomes an over-desire for that, when it becomes an ultimate thing? Guess what? It will crush you. It'll mess up your world. It'll become something that all you're thinking about is thinking about food, 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 and diet, 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 and exercise, exercise, exercise. And listen, it becomes a God thing in our life, and it's, it's not good for us. It's not good for us. I could go on. Hobbies, money. It's not wrong to have money, but can money become a God? Absolutely it can. All these things. And when we live for those things, we become worldly. And when we live for those things, we will also die by those things. We will live and die based on how much we have, how good we look, how good we feel, rather than putting our stock and our worth in the God who says you are valuable and worth something because I created you and I have given you a purpose and a meaning in life. So here's the thing. We can love humans, but we don't need to become humanistic. We can love pleasure, but we don't need to become hedonistic, which is just, you know, where we, all we want is pleasure all the time, right? Making that our ultimate goal. So here, here's the question for me. How do we know when we've crossed over from God-given desire to actual worldliness? How do you know when you kind of move from, from just desiring something that's a good thing to actually becoming worldly? How do we know when we've moved from enjoying God's creation to worshiping it? How do we know when we move from seeing God's creation as a gift to becoming to that, that thing becoming God's competitor in our lives and in our hearts. Here's some questions, just three. First one is this. Do we appreciate whatever it is, eating, pleasure, relationships, without obsessing over it? Okay? Do we appreciate those things? And when I say appreciate, do we specifically thank God for those things without obsessing over those things? You know what happens when you obsess? It's like all you can think about, right? Your life is, you wake up in the morning and you're driven by it. You're obsessing about it. You're thinking about it. How about this one? If whatever it is, if, it, if, if eating or, that's going to sound weird to say it this way, but, but if excessive eating or if, um, if whatever it is that, 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 that may be your particular issue, I don't know what it is, was taken away, would I freak out? Okay, if, if blank was taken away, would I freak out? You can tell if it, if, if it was taken away and you freak out that that's something you've now turned into a God thing in your life. Or maybe even just a, a different way of saying this, this is a big question that, man, really revealed my heart this week as I was thinking about it. What do we worry and stress out about? 
what causes the most anxiety and stress in our lives? Because whatever that is, that's what we have turned into a God thing in our life. What is it that keeps you up at night, stressing, anxious? Because you know God's word says we should not be anxious about anything, right? And that we shouldn't worry. This week in our life group, just a, a plug for life groups, I love, I love our life groups and I love living in community with people and getting to hear different perspectives. And one of the ladies in our, our life group shared a little bit of a story from her past and she said she really struggled with anxiety and stress and worry. And somebody gave her a plaque and the plaque basically said this. It said, why pray when you can worry? You hear that switch? Why pray when you can worry? What is it that you worry and stress about? Because chances are that's what you have made a God thing in your life. So why is this, why is this a big deal? Let's close out this passage. Why is loving the world, making it ultimate, a bad idea? Verse 17 says it this way. And the world with its lust, its over-desire, its, its elevating stuff to ultimate value It is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. Here's why you shouldn't put your stock or your hope in stuff in this world, because it's not going to be here forever. It's not going to last. It's going to wear out. It's going to be gone. Now, some of you in here in this room, you know you've bought a brand new car before. Or you've bought a house. Or you've gotten some new clothes or you've gotten to a place where you, you, you got something and you really wanted it badly and you finally got that. Or you got a gaming system, students. And then what happens? It, it wears out. Eventually, it's not so cool anymore. There's something else that's replaced it. Something else that's gotten, that's, that's superseded it. And now you want that thing. The truth is, is that this world is not going to last. The desires will fade and if we put our hope in the things of this world, we are going to be sorely, sorely disappointed on those days. And you may get a lot of criticism when you put your hope in God. People are going to think you're crazy. Why would you do that? You know, why would you not put your hope in, I mean, why wouldn't you just enjoy? Why wouldn't you just have fun and enjoy this stuff that, that's here? And, and listen, like I said, we should enjoy the things that are here. We just shouldn't make them ultimate. But know this. Critics, they're going to constantly change what they criticize. You know? It's always changing. What critics are, are, are criticizing today, they're going to criticize something different in 20 years from now. And then later and later. Because you know what? The way the world's thinking is always changing. But you know what doesn't change? Our God. He doesn't change. And his gospel, his good news, that we can have life in Christ never changes. And he says in this passage, he says... Who the, the one who does God's will remains forever. The one who does God's will remains forever. What is God's will? God's will is that we, as his creation, would live for the sake of the creator. We would live, to use the word that it says in scripture, to live for his glory. We would live to put him first, to put him at the center of our relationships, to put them at the center of our workplace, to put him at the center of everything we do so that we can truly do what Paul says when he says, whether you eat 
or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of Jesus. Whether you're married or single, whether you work or you're out of work, whether you are a parent or wanting to be a parent, wherever you find yourself, whether you're a teenager or whether you are a retiree, wherever you are, do it all for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus. And you know what you will find is that when you do that, you will find more satisfaction than you can even begin to imagine because it's in its right place. You can enjoy good meals. You can enjoy beautiful sunsets. You can enjoy going on good vacations. You can enjoy driving nice cars. You can enjoy all this stuff, but you're not defined by it because you've already been defined by the person and work of Jesus. Your attitude and your emotions will not rise and fall based on what you do not have or what you have because you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. And when that happens for us, teenagers in the room, when that happens for you, that you can find your identity and worth and value and security, learn this now. Don't wait till you're older like us, okay? Learn this now. When you can find your identity and your worth and your value and your security in Christ, you don't need your friends to define you. You don't need cool clothes to define you because Jesus has already done that. You are loved, you are valued, you are worthy because of Christ. I want to close out with this. C.S. Lewis, he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Isn't that good? If there is a consistent nagging wrestling in your soul that you are struggling to be satisfied in this world, it's because you know why? You weren't made for this world alone. You were made for so much more. And that so much more is God and his goodness. If you plant your flag in this world and you say this is what it's all about, you're gonna be sorely disappointed on the day when it all ends. But if you plant your flag in the life that is to come, You're not only gonna be excited, you're gonna be blown away because the scripture says no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can even begin to imagine what God has for those who he loves. It's gonna far exceed your expectations. And maybe I'm the only voice this week that's saying that to you, but believe it. Believe it because it's true. Do not love the world. Do not buy into the system you buy into that system, we all know where that system's headed. Depression, discouragement, destruction. But if you buy into the belief that Jesus is sufficient, that he is life, yeah, you're gonna have some bumps and bruises along the way, but you're also gonna experience the joy of enjoying his gifts now as we wait for even greater gifts to come. Let's pray.